0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. So um, uh, for a long time, for 16 years, I owned a Honda Civic, and this Honda Civic got me all around the city, especially I lived in Seattle, and it was the best car you could ever imagine, especially for parallel parking. You were fighting for parking spots like you were on an episode you know, of Survivor. And it was just it was a great car, and I love this car because I love the story of it. I had bought this car from a guy who would salvage cars. He would find cars that thought, that were beyond repair that had been wrecked had been totaled. I saw a, car, a picture of my car before it was repaired, and it looked like a, like a harmonica of sorts or like a you know, accordion just smashed together the uh, the front end bumper was all the way into the steering wheel and to see it come back to life and then be restored was always something I thought about. I loved that that could happen, that people had the skills and the abilities. To do something like that. And then 16 years of my life was spent in something that was salvaged. And really, the word salvaged comes out from something that is being saved, something that's being restored, something that's being made new. And I'm sure when that my car was looked at, whether if you don't have the skill set, if you don't have the ability, if you don't have the knowledge, you would have looked at it and said, This car is junk, this car is scrap metal, it should be tossed aside. But if you know what you're doing, if you know how to save it, if you know how to restore it, you see something altogether different. And I think a lot of times in our lives, there's places that look like they're beyond a salvage. There are relationships, there are experiences, there are circumstances, there are pasts that we feel like they can't be salvaged. We look and we feel like we've gone too far or it's too late or that relationship's beyond repair and we go, it cannot be salvaged. But friends, the very message of the gospel, the message of what we're looking at in the next couple of weeks is a world that looks like it's beyond salvage, a God who knows and loves you and is over all things can salvage it. That he has the power, that he has the love, that he has the care, the concern, and he enters in to salvage what seems completely lost. And so we meet some of our, some of my favorite people in all of the Bible this morning, In Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 5, some people that are facing a circumstance that looks like it cannot be salvaged. Like there's a dream, a longing, a hope, a desire that's beyond repair. So follow along with me, starting in verse 5. It says this, in the days of Herod. In the days of Herod. So who's Herod? Herod is Herod the Great. He has been, in some ways, the king of the Jews. That's how he's positioned and postured himself over Jerusalem for about 30 years. And he is not a good, good, he's not a good guy. He is a tyrant. He rules with an iron fist, and he's also terrible to the people. Herod also set himself up not that he'd be under the authority of God, but rather he'd be alongside of God. In fact, where the temple was, Herod built his dwelling place right next to it, in some ways in juxtaposition to those very things. So Herod is ruling over. He sees himself as king of the Jews. He's a tyrannical type of leader. He saw himself, in some ways, as the real real king. And that's why we'll see in the coming weeks why Herod finds Jesus so threatening. So Herod has been ruling over Jerusalem, and God is about to enter in, and he's going to do it beginning in our story. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijad, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Elizabeth. Zechariah means the Lord remembers so it's already prophetic we see the Lord has not forgotten the people of Israel how do we know that he shows up and he's beginning to tell his story of how he's going to come and meet the very condition and reality of the people of Israel through a, a priest also I mean he's kind of a pastor in that day and age whose name is the Lord remembers The Lord remembers. And what you're gonna have to see today is there's two stories going on. There's a there's the big story that God's telling of how He's saving and redeeming Israel and then all of the world. And then there's also the story of Zachariah and Elizabeth. And those are always overlapping, they're intertwining, they're linked together, and that's true for you and I as well. Our stories are part of a much bigger story. And sometimes where we get lost is when we think our story doesn't. Fall into a greater story, that our life doesn't have purpose, that it doesn't have meaning, that there is nothing beyond us. But when we realize there is, it begins to put so much of what we experience and what we go through into perspective, realizing that your story is part of a much greater story. So, Zechariah is a pastor and he's part of a division of priests. In this day and age, there were close to 18,000 priests throughout the nation of Israel. And he's married to to a woman who comes from a family of ministry as well. The daughter of Aaron. Aaron was also another priestly tribe. So this would have been a ministry family. And her name is Elizabeth. Verse 6 tells us what we know about them. It says, they were both righteous before God, walking blameless in all of the commandments. That's a big statement, isn't it? Who's going to put that on their Facebook profile? Righteous before God. I mean, that's a big claim. I mean, they're coming right out of the gate. I'm righteous before God. I keep all of the commandments, all 612 commandments of the Old Testament, Elizabeth and Zechariah are walking in. Does this mean they're perfect? Does that mean they haven't made mistakes? Does that mean they haven't sinned and messed up? No, but it means the consistent trajectory, the path of their life has been one in which they wanna follow and trust God. That yes, they're gonna make mistakes, that yes, they're gonna sin, that yes, at times their hearts are prone to wonder, but over a long period of time, they've progressively and ongoingly been following God. And this is good news for you and I. I don't know about you, but every once in a while, following Jesus, the Christian life seems really hard. It's like, can you do this? Does it really work? Is it possible? And we have an example of people here who are older in age, and they're trusting and following Jesus. They're loving God. This is such good news for you. This is one of my favorite things often about our, our church is I love talking to people that have followed Jesus for 30, 40, 50, 60 years. There's such an encouragement to me saying you can run this race, you can follow God. It doesn't mean you're gonna be perfect, but over time, you'll become more and more like Jesus as you trust him and as you follow him. And that is really what we see about Elizabeth and Zachariah. They trusted and followed God. But here's their problem, verse seven. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advanced in years. They had no child. This has two major implications. One's economical and one's social. Economically speaking, not having a child in that day and age means, especially as you were getting older, you faced the possibility of being destitute. There wasn't a social safety net, there wasn't social security and IRAs and 401Ks and all these pension plans, but in reality, the way it was set up is that you would have kids and you would care for them and you'd wipe their runny noses and you'd take them off to school and you'd make sure they got all their lunches and then when you got older and you were more weak, that they would do that for you, that they would care for you. In some ways, a child was not only someone that you loved and invested in, but they were also your hope as you aged and got older. So Elizabeth and Zachariah also faced this situation, this reality, of what are we gonna do financially and economically? We're getting older in age and we don't have any children. But then also socially, there's the pressure. There's the pressure. For those without children, they were often viewed with suspicion and scorn. What have they done to make God mad? Why has God cursed them in such a way? If you don't have children, you must have done something wrong to anger God, right? You could just almost hear the murmurs as they would walk around their town and their village and their community. It seems like they're a great ministry family. I think Zachariah is a good pastor. Elizabeth seems to love Jesus. But there must be more to the story, right? Otherwise, God would have given them kids. Otherwise, God would have blessed them. Otherwise, God would have given them a family. And it also tells us they're advanced in years. This likely means that they're at least 50 years old. At least 50 years old. So they're advancing up in age, and if, if, if we're honest, by, by the time you're 50, you're thinking that dream of having kids is probably gone. You're probably realizing that's not going to happen for you. There's a longing, there's a desire, there's a hope, there's a godly aspiration that in some ways you're having to give up on. Can you imagine the sleepless nights that they would have had? Could you imagine almost day after day a small death that Elizabeth would have felt at not being able to be a mom? Maybe a funeral almost daily in her heart as she considered and looked around and at the same time kept her heart from growing bitter at seeing all the other kiddos growing up and realizing that wasn't happening for her. There's something beautiful, though. Once again, we're reminded that Elizabeth and Zachariah remained righteous before God. In the midst of what feels like, God, where are you? God, why haven't you blessed us? God, why haven't you given us kids? Everyone around us is murmuring. They're suspicious. In some sense, there's even this social scorn upon us. They remain righteous. They chose to trust God in spite of feeling like they had a longing and a desire that's godly and wasn't happening for them. What do you do in those moments? What do you do in those places when there's a godly desire to have kids, to have a family, and it doesn't happen. I mean, there's probably many of us in this room. We wanna be married, but we're not. Or we got divorced and we wanted to stay married. Or we wanted to live a life of radical generosity, but we were barely financially squeezing by. Or we got pregnant and then there was a miscarriage. What do you do in those places? I mean, if you're Elizabeth and you're sitting in that spot, I mean, there's a lot of different options, right? You can go bitter, you can embrace God, I've done all the things that I'm supposed to do, we're living a righteous life, we're serving you, we're working in the church, we're doing all these things for our community, and God, you have not held up your end of the deal. My heart's hardened toward you and those around me who seem to have what I want. Spirit of entitlement. God, we had a deal. I would keep my end of the bargain and you would keep your end of the bargain. This is a contract though, that's not covenant, that's not how God works inside a relationship. He doesn't work like a contract, he works like a loving father and that relationship doesn't have terms. Or what I think a lot of us do if we're just honest in those places of unfulfilled godly desires, we often feel like it's justification and license to rebel, to sin, to lash out, to take matters into our own hands. I mean, you got to think for a second, Zachariah is a pastor. He's constantly preaching the Old Testament. He's going to know the story of Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. Very similar story to them. They're old. God has a ministry call upon their life. They don't seem to be able to have kids. They've given up hope. And what do they do? They take matters into their own hands. They arrange for an adultery-type situation for them to still have a child, and out of that comes Disaster. There's amazing fallout from that. And I don't know about you, but those times in your life where you felt justified to say, God, I can't count on you anymore. It doesn't seem like you're gonna deliver. It doesn't seem like you're gonna come through. And you take matters into your own hands. It's often disastrous. There's pain, there's regret, and there's loss. So what do you do when you're in that spot? And here's what I wanna say to you. There, what I imagine Elizabeth living with it on a daily basis is this godly grief. And I want you to know that's okay. There are going to be places and spaces in your life where there's a godly grief. God, it just hasn't happened. That longing, that good godly longing has gone unfulfilled. It hasn't happened for me. It hasn't worked out the way we thought it would. But yet they remain righteous. How easy would it be for Zachariah and Elizabeth to give in to cynicism even? You guys ever been there? Cynicism? I mean, it's a really popular thing in our day and age, especially, where eventually the disappointment and the hurt sets in, so what do you do? You just kind of rise above it or pretend like you no longer feel it. Yeah. You know what? Prayer works, but after a while, you realize you just got to take things into your own hands. You know, you can trust God to an extent, but after a while, you're going to have to rely on yourself. You know, I really don't want to pray anymore because I'm just tired of God not answering. And yet Jesus calls us back time and time again to a child-like faith. A faith that continues to hope, a faith that always believes, a faith that stands there in awe and wonder and says even when something seems impossible, God can still do the miraculous. That's the God we believe in. That's the business that God is in to do the very miraculous, the things that we long ago gave up hope on. Verse 8 kind of picks up on this same theme. Continuing on, this is what it says. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Okay, so this is a really big deal. There's 18,000 priests. They're divided up into 24 divisions. And your division goes to Jerusalem, goes to the temple twice a year. It's you, you, you get two turns a year to go there and to, to serve at the temple. And then out of that that division, there's 750 of you about in that division and you'll cast lots to see which one of you gets to go into the temple to burn incense and to offer a prayer on behalf of the nation of Israel. The odds are against any priest that he'll get to do this in his entire life. So it's almost like playing the lotto, like the, like the, the priest lotto. Like, you, you know, you, you're coming, you're casting lots, you're saying, is it my turn, is it my turn, is it my turn? Most of the time in your entire life, you're going to go without getting the turn to go into the temple. And this is a, an incredible honor. This is a once-in-a-lifetime moment. And the lots are stacked in the favor of Zachariah. Comes up in his favor. And he's chosen. Now, this seems so circumstantial, but what do we know? All the things in our life that appear circumstantial are actually providential. The things that we think they're just abs- accidental and happenstance, they're actually governed by the providence and the guidance of God, even down to the casting of lots. Isn't that amazing? Into the small details, once again, God is telling this incredible story of how Jesus is going to come redeem the world. And it involves all the way down to the minutia of the casting of lots so that Zechariah would go in to have this holy and divine encounter that he's about to have. And he's chosen to go in. This is a a once-in-a-lifetime moment. Think about your job. Just imagine the once-in-a-lifetime biggest moment you're ever going to get. That's exactly what's in front of Zechariah. So he's going in to offer incense. And incense is this sweet fragrant that ascends to God. And that's what prayer is as well. He goes in to offer prayer because that's also a sweet fragrance that goes in, that that goes up to God and and, and is, is sweet to him. And he hears and he senses. Verse 10. And the whole multitude of people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense." So he goes in, everyone's praying. Imagine that, they're rooting for Zachariah. This is your big day. You're gonna go in. You're gonna get to pray on behalf of the nation and you're gonna get to light the incense and you're gonna, you're gonna get this once in a lifetime opportunity. He goes in, he's like, okay, I got all the instructions. I know what I'm supposed to do. This is a really big deal. And he gets in and there's an angel. Okay, the instructions. What do I do with angel? Angel appears. What do I, no instructions for this. <laughs> okay, this is, this is not included in Leviticus of how do I handle when angel shows up? No idea. An angel, and this is not like a hallmark Valentine angel, like this is an angel angel. This is like Bible angel. This is like, if you see me, you're gonna fall down in fear or you're gonna be tempted to worship me. This is an angelic being who rules and reigns with God over all of the universe. One of his emissaries, one of his ambassadors to see the story of salvation go to the world. Incredible. Verse 12, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Sometimes the Bible's understated, right? (laughs) Sometimes it's like, I think you could have elaborated. The word troubled and fear there is actually fear, especially, that's the Greek word phobos, where we get all of our phobias from. He's having an angel phobia in this moment. A great fear at seeing an angel, just like we would. This is Gabriel, too. Gabriel is one of only two angels that we know the names of in all of the Bible. Gabriel is a really big deal. We know Michael and we know Gabriel. And when they show up, it's often to start to inaugurate a new era in God's work. And that's exactly what's happening with us in this passage Verse 13, but the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. So Gabriel shows up and he says, don't be afraid, which is really hard, right? Of course, you're still going to be afraid. There's an angel standing in front of you. You've never seen an angel. And then he's going to say, but your prayer has been answered. Guys, this is incredible, okay? Don't don't miss this. Your prayer has been answered. There's a double meaning in which Gabriel is speaking to him. There's a double meaning, okay? Why is Zechariah there? He's there to pray on behalf of the nation of Israel that they would be delivered, that Roman rule and oppression would finally be overthrown, and a Messiah would come, that they would be liberated that God would come and rule and reign with his people. That's what he's there to pray for, to petition on behalf of the nation of Israel. And then also we know that Elizabeth and, and, and Zachariah have been praying for decades for a son. So in some ways it's like, well, which prayer of Zachariah is being answered? Both. Both prayers are being answered. Both the cosmic story and the personal story, and we see how those two come together. The story that God is telling to redeem all of the world, and the story of the life of Zechariah and Elizabeth. And God is working and willing and wooing to have both of those things come together for His good purposes. And He's going to bring great joy. And he's going to bring great gladness. He's now saying this is the ministry. This is the mission of this very boy that I'm about to give you. You know, it's hard for me to think too when it says that that phrase, your prayer has been heard. Your prayer has been heard. I, I don't know about you, but if I was in Zachariah or Elizabeth's position and I'd been praying something for 30, 40, 50 years, I might give up. I might throw in the towel. I'd probably mothball that prayer. Just chalk that one up. I guess God's not going to answer that one for me. There's a godly desire I have to be a dad, and I guess that one's just not going to happen for me. So rather than return to that open wound over and over and over again, the best thing I can do is just move on. But what's stunning about this is, is the implication that Gabriel's saying is that Zachariah and Elizabeth had still been praying for this. Against all odds. I mean, they're 50 years old and they're still praying for what seems impossible. They continued on in their prayer in spite of circumstances, in spite of what others were saying around them, in spite of what the world would tell them. They continued to pray. <laughs> Amazing. And here's what I'd say about prayer. I mean, prayer is one of those things and, uh, where, where God's answers are always yes, no, and later. Yes, no, and later. He does hear your prayers. I mean, I think about with my girls, one question we're always having in our house right now, and I want to be a good dad. I hope I'm a good dad to them. But one of the questions is, is, is around pets, okay? If you're a mom and dad, eventually you're going to cross that pet conversation. And so the conversation recently has been like, can we have a hermit crab? It's like, yes. Yes, you can have a hermit crab because they stay there. They don't move. There's nothing. Yes. Can we have a dog? Later. <laughs> when you'll pick up the, you know, the poop. When you'll do that, all that in the backyard, that's later. So Later. Can we have a Bengal tiger? No, we can never have a Bengal tiger. No, never, not gonna do that. So there's a yes, no, and later. And the reason they can't have a Bengal tiger is because it's dangerous and I know what's good for them. Now they don't believe me, they think they're right and they think I'm a tyrant, they think I'm a bad dad because I won't give them a Bengal tiger. I just happen to know a little bit more and also what our budget looks like. Can't afford a Bengal tiger. But at the center of prayer, in the midst of prayer, especially prayers where it's often no and later, what's what's fascinating about it, when you look at the Bible and how people are praying, is prayer is just as much about how we're being carved out and shaped by our prayers as it is the answers of them. How you are being shaped by your prayers as much as the answers to your prayers. Imagine how Elizabeth would have been shaped by her prayers. Do you think she would have grown in patience? Do you think she would have grown in steadfastness? Do you think she would have grown in faith even? To still be praying this prayer against all odds, 50 years old. And I'm sure there's even some biological reasons she thought this was off the table. But yet here she is still praying. Amazing. And you will call him John, as it tells us in verse 13 as well. You will call him John. I love this. John is in Elizabeth's womb, and he's already a person. Don't miss that. He has a name. He's known. He has a future. He's fearfully and wonderfully made. He's already being called according to God's good purposes. We celebrate life here at Stonegate, right? Whether that's a new spiritual life in which people meet Jesus and their hearts are redeemed and they come alive to the things of God. Or when I look around this room right now and I love going over to our, our preschool ministry and seeing all the new life. Our God is a giver of life, both biological and spiritual. He gives new life. And you will have gladness and you will rejoice at his birth. Once again, you've got to see the story inside the story. The gladness and joy would not only be for Elizabeth and Zechariah, but would also be for all peoples. It would be for us today, 2,000 years later, we're still talking about this very story the story continues, verse 15. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Spirit, even from his mother's womb. So, Gabriel's saying, I want to tell you a little bit about how important your boy is. In fact, Jesus would later on say that John would be the greatest man who ever lived. And John's an intense dude, right? That's probably why this verse says he shouldn't drink. So John was already a pretty, do we all have that guy, that friend in our life who's pretty passionate, pretty intense? I mean, I picture him like the Kool-Aid guy who would just bust through a wall going, oh, yeah. You know, just already fired up. He's out in the woods. He's hunting. He's wearing Jedi robes. He's probably got like this big, crazy Afro hair. He's eating bugs and sugar. I mean, this is John, and he's telling people to repent. This guy probably doesn't need to drink. He's set apart for a holy purpose, though. When you think about drinking though I mean the issue here isn't necessarily that it's wrong but rather it's a matter of calling and conscience. And John is called to a specific purpose. He's been anointed, he's been set apart for a task in which he would make way, he would prepare the way for Jesus. He's almost the fullback. I'm here to I'm here to to clear the lane for Jesus. I'm here to open up the pathway In fact, that's what verse 16 says. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Because what does John do? John has this incredible ministry where he goes out and he calls for the nation of Israel. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, repent, repent. Not a popular message then and not one now, is it? People love the call to tolerate. But we don't always love the call to repent. And God does tolerate us. And then he calls us to repent. And why repent? So that we can be made new. So that we can be restored. So that we can be freed from our sins. So that the wrath of God can be removed from upon us. And so that we would be reconciled to God. So if you're here this morning and that's not you, today's the day for you to repent. Today is the day for you to realize that the the kingdom of God is at hand. For you to experience new life in Jesus it says he will go before him in the spirit and the power of Elijah to turn, power of Elijah. Now, Elijah is really interesting, right? If you know your Old Testament, Elijah is one of the greatest prophets of, uh, in, in all the Old Testament history. In fact, he's one of only two people who didn't die. I mean, you got to be a pretty great guy to not die. You know, God's like, hey, you're doing so great at this life thing. I'm just going to send an Uber chariot on down. You hop on board and you just come on up, you know. You, you run your race. You, just, you don't even have to die. Just come on up. So, I mean, when, you, when, when you're Zechariah and you're told, my boy's going to be like Elijah, I mean, that's incredible. You're being told your boy is going to be one of the greatest men who ever lived. But here's the main thing about prophets. It usually doesn't go well for them. So Zechariah is probably also doing the prophet math, too, of like most prophets, it usually ends very badly for them. So he's already finding that out about what the life is going to look like for his boy. But yet that doesn't dissuade him. He's got a very specific purpose. The purpose is to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. This is straight out of Malachi. Malachi is the very last book of the Old Testament. It's been written 400 years prior to this very moment. 400 years. So for 400 years, God has gone silent on the nation of Israel. God hasn't spoken for 400 years. So when you're reading your Bible, there's one page between Malachi and Matthew, between your Old Testament and New Testament. They really should put like 400 pages of blankness in there. Just to give you a better representation of God, just nothing. There's silence. God's gone silent. People are waiting. They're still going to the temple. They're offering sacrifices. They're burning incense. They're doing this daily. They're waiting for the Lord to come back to liberate them, and today is the day. When Gabriel quotes Malachi, what he's saying is everything's going to be different from here. We're entering into an entirely new period in which how the God of the universe will relate to this world. We're beginning a new age, the age of the Messiah, the coming of the king, the true king, the cosmic king in Jesus Christ. All of that is beginning today with the work of your son, Zechariah. Incredible. Absolutely incredible. And it says a father's heart. It says a father's heart. One of the things I think about is that as you follow Jesus, um, and I think you could say father or, or mom, there's, there's, there's parents involved here, but the heart of parents for kids is such a sure sign of the work of the Lord in someone's life. That the disposition, the orientation is to not see kids as a burden, but to begin to see them as a blessing. Yes, kids are a lot of work, okay? There's runny noses, there's temper tantrums, there's Cheerios on the floor, there's mismatched outfits, there's school, I mean, all that, I get all that. But is that a burden or is that a blessing? Is the orientation of your heart toward your children, or is it away from them in your own Affections, And so God comes and he gives us a father's heart because he has a father's heart for us. Do you realize that you have a heavenly father? And moms and dad, he gives you that same type of heart toward your children. Since I became a dad um, eight years ago, one of the things that's been most transformative for me hasn't been reading stacks and stacks of more theological books, but just feeling the heart that God's given me for my children. And it's taught me so much about the heart that God has for me. When I see my kids play, I never view them as a burden. I don't view them as like, I guess I have to tolerate you. I guess I have to put up with you. I, I, I hope you don't get too messy. I hope you don't make a lot of mistakes. And if you do, go figure it out and clean yourself up. And when you do, you'll be presentable for our house again. But no, I love them. I pursue them. I go after them. I, I, I adore them. I, w- I want to be around them. And this is the same heart that Father God has for you. Your heavenly father has that same heart for you. He's not just tolerating you. He's not just putting up with you, but he loves you. He's enthralled with you. That's the very message of the gospel. What kind of God walks across the universe to go down to a dirty, broken world, to be with broken people unless there's a deep, compassionate, pursuant love? No God that I know, but that's what a father's heart looks like. And there's one of incredible hope in that. Verse 18 is how Zechariah responds. And so the angel, Gabriel, he's been telling him all the things that are about to happen. And here's what Zechariah says. And it probably would have been better, you know, especially as guys, we need to learn this every once in a while just to be quiet. I mean, probably would have just been good for Zechariah to say nothing, but he can't help himself. So he dives in and he says, how shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. How shall I know this? Zachariah responds with questions instead of worship. Zechariah responds with suspicion rather than confidence and faith. And part of me can't blame Zachariah. I've been in those same places and so have you. When your circumstances feel like they're in high definition and the promises of God feel like they've gone mute that you look at your life and you see all that's stacked up against you and all the things that feel unfulfilled and all the ways that it feels like God has not come through, and that's on high definition and you read your Bible and it feels so small. So what does Gabriel do? Gabriel says, well, I do hang out with God all day. (laughs) That's what he says. And the angel answered him, I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I don't know what other argument to really give you. I mean, we're about at the top of the org chart right now, okay? I was just hanging out with God. I, was, I mean, the guy who made the universe, I was in his presence, okay? I was just with him. Now I'm with you, okay? He sent me here. So I don't know what else I can do besides just tell you I'm, I'm an angel, I'm sent from God, and you're already terrified of me. So, I mean, that's, that's enough of a sign. But what he does is he actually does give him a sign. And this is what he says. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place. Because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. So the sign that Gabriel gives him is that he makes him mute. This is Psalm 46. Be still and know that I am God. And sometimes words will only get us so far, right? Sometimes there's nothing left to be said except to wait. And wait and trust God that he'll act. So Gabriel says, what I'm going to do as a sign for you is I'm going to make you mute. And in due time, you'll get to see God work. And I don't know about you, but there are all sorts of spaces and places and situations in my life where I just need to be quiet. I just need to be still and be reminded that God is God. That I'm not. That I don't sit on the throne of this universe, that I don't even run my life, that this whole idea of how much control I have and how I can manipulate and make things happen is much more of an illusion than I'd like to admit. So he gives him this sign, Zechariah, just watch, just wait, just be quiet. So what does Gabriel do? Gabriel comes out, because at this time people are starting to get a little nervous, okay? They're out there praying the whole time, and he's in here having this really intense conversation with Gabriel. They're on their knees praying for, or, or for Zechariah. I mean, multitudes are gathered out there. Some of them are like, man, what's going on? Is, is he all right? Everything good? Was, who wants to go check? Him? I'm not going in there. You go in there. <laughs> what, what, what's taking? Man, is, what time's the Cowboys game going on? We, we got to go. And so there's this, there's this moment where people are beginning to wonder what's going on. They're wondering at his delay, as it says in verse 21. And then Zechariah comes out, verse 22, and when he came out, he was unable to speak to them and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. So this is what he does. He comes out, he can't speak. So what happens? Our first game of biblical charades begins, right? He's like, baby, can't talk, angel, you know, like, uh, I mean, he's probably just trying to, like, describe it to them in gestures of, like, I was in there, there's going to be a baby, I can't talk, angel, I mean, just imagine that. There's some, there's some comedy inside of that very moment as he's beginning to try and describe this miraculous thing that's about to occur, but yet he has to remain silent and just wait for God to show what he's going to do. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. I mean, so he had to travel back home. Can you imagine what that was like for him? He can't speak to anyone. He's probably thinking to himself, like, what a day at work. Like, gosh, this was crazy. <laughs> I wish I could tell Elizabeth about it, but he can't. So he can't tell her, and he shows up, and he's mute. And I don't know, maybe Elizabeth's actually thankful. You know, she's like, well, this is great. I'm going to be pregnant, and I got a silent husband for the next couple months. <laughs> like, this is a win-win. God, you really do love me. What a huge blessing. And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept to herself, hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. I just, sweet Elizabeth, how incredible. I mean, those five months, going away, withdrawing, realizing that the Lord had heard her prayers. For years and years, when circumstances conspired against her, when everything in life told her to give up, that this hope, this longing was going to go unfulfilled, she realized the whole time the Lord had been hearing her. The Lord had heard my prayers. He was listening. His ear is attentive to those who know him. And she says, he has given me a son his reproach among people. She's talking about her, his, the, the reproach among people being taken away. What's fascinating about this is the reproach that Elizabeth felt in her community. Once again, people looking at her with scorn. What's wrong with her? Why hasn't she been given a child? Why have things not gone the way that they should go for those who are righteous? Don't they really trust God? Doesn't God really love them? And yet she's being given a child. Could you imagine what those conversations look like for her for the last couple decades, year in, year out? People looking at her with a sense of judgment. A sense of scorn. scorn. Uh, There's a phrase, persona non grata, which a lot of us have probably heard of. And that literally means a person without grace. And Elizabeth in this moment is a person who, who for many years of her life has felt like a person who has not had grace. And here she is being restored and having grace. And she's being given a son. And what does she say about this son? This son is coming to take away the reproach that I live with the shame that I live with. So, once again, the cosmic part and then the individual part. She's being given a son who's gonna take away her shame. And her son is part of a story in which the son, Jesus Christ, comes to take away all shame. Isn't that incredible? So friend, I don't know where you are this morning in trusting God. I don't know what that looks like for you and your circumstances or life feeling like has all these unfulfilled godly desires that seemingly haven't come through. I don't know if you've given up on prayer. I don't know if it feels like you can't trust God in those moments. But this story of Elizabeth tells us we serve a miraculous God. A God who doesn't give up on us. A God who's always hearing us. A God who loves us. A God who is near Jerry Bridges says this, trust is not a passive state of mind. It is a vigorous act of the soul by which we choose to lay hold on the promise of God and cling to them despite the adversity that at times seeks to overwhelm us. Your feelings, your feelings will often betray you. They'll often lie to you along with your circumstances, but the promises of God and trusting God is always worth it. Yet there is a yes, no, and later reality, but the reality is, is that God does hear your prayers, that God does love you, that God is for you, and that he's working everything out for your good. So there Elizabeth sits, her, her shame taken away because she has a son, and here we sit. Because of her son, and the ministry would, he, he would have, Jesus would come, and he would take away all of our shame. So some of you walk in this morning, and you feel immense shame you feel like, God, there's been places in my life that if people knew about, there would be lots of judgment. If people really knew my story, if people really heard from me, would they still embrace me or would they look away? And so Jesus came not just to take away your sin and the wrath of God, but also to take away your shame, to remove your shame, to free you from your shame. This is the good news of the gospel. This is the hope of the gospel. This is the reality that you and I, no matter what's been done to us, what's most important is what's been done for us. And what's been done for you is that the God of the universe would come down as a little baby. He would incarnate himself. He would live a life that's perfect. And he would go to a cross and he would die for your sin and he would also die for your shame so that you could be reconciled to him, so that you could know him so that you could live a new life and that you could be free from your shame because there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, you um, are a God who shows up in the messes. You uh, You find us often people that are doubting A lot like Zachariah, we wonder, God, how could you possibly fix this? How could you possibly salvage this? And yet you do. You're a God who shows up when we think that it's a lost cause. And so um, for those of us that are sitting in this room this morning, God, I just ask that you would come and meet them in a very powerful way to soften their heart, that they would repent of their sin, that they would let go, that they would be free from their shame, from the bondage of feeling like they're broken in a lost cause, knowing that you love them, that you're for them, that you care about them. And God, those of us who have drifted away, feeling like, does God really hear me? that they would have a moment right now knowing that your ear is attuned to them, that they, that, that they can pray to you, that they can speak their concerns, their worries, their, their unmet longings to you. And there's, a, there's room and space for a godly grief. You're a God who wants to hear those things. God, we know that you have grace upon grace for us. And in this season of Advent, as we look and study a world and a place and a space and time 2,000 years ago where they, they anticipated, they longed for your coming, we join with them 2,000 years later as people who are anticipating and longing your coming. Oh God, that you would come. That you would, that, that you would come and, and restore this world. And in the midst of that, God, we, we celebrate And we take such great confidence knowing that you have already come and died on a cross so that we could be free from our sin. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at Stonegate-Church.com.